This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Our scripture this morning is from the Gospel of John, verses 1 through 5, page 886 in the Black Pew Bibles. Page 886, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we come to you in humility because of the precious blood of your son, Jesus. And we ask that you would speak to us. God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear glorious things from your word. God, would you give us living understanding? Cause our hearts to be awakened to your truth, that we would know you and love you and walk in conformity with your desires. Lord God, I ask this morning that you would produce something in us at the declaration of your word. I ask that you would produce worship. God, would you receive from us, from this family, the worship and the glory that is due you alone? God, and would you let the truth of your word captivate our affections and our desires, and our minds, and our emotions, God, in such a way that the only response we could return would be worship, adoration, submission, exaltation of you. God, would you come and shine your light, just even as we heard read God, we cannot, of our own capacities or our own intelligence or our own wisdom, put together and piece together the truths of your word in a way that would move and compel us to respond. So would you come and shine a light? Would you shine your light? And would 
the darkness in our eyes and in the darkness in our hearts, the darkness in this world, would it not be able to overcome or stand up against the potency of the light of the glory of God made known in the face of Jesus? So come and give us eyes. Give us hearts to receive. Illuminate us, we ask, by your word, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're just going to jump right in. We're in week three in our series, looking at the person of Jesus. In the next two weeks, in some ways, are going to be uh, two sides of this glorious paradox that lies right at the heart of the Christian faith. So what we see is at the heart of the church's historic confession or the heart of what the scripture invites us to submit to and believe about Jesus Christ is one of the great paradoxes of our faith. Here's the statement. Jesus Christ is fully God and Jesus Christ is fully man. In the next two weeks, we're going to piece those two statements out. This morning, we're going to look at what does it mean for Jesus Christ to be fully God, and then next week, we'll look at what does it mean for Jesus to be fully human. Uh, But these two truths held together uh, form one of the greatest truths at the center of our confession as the people of God. Letter B, the revelation of Jesus as fully God is absolutely foundational to Christian faith and the message of the gospel. We're going to get to this uh, hopefully over the course of this morning, but if Jesus is not God, there is no gospel. There is no gospel at the center of the message of the good news that God has provided a way to save sinful men and women. Jesus has to come, the the word of God, the eternal son of God has to come to make a way for salvation. At the heart of the good news is the reality that God himself has come to save. God didn't send some uh, agent outside of himself. He didn't use some means far off. He himself came to provide salvation. That is at the heart of the Christian confession, the heart of the message of the scripture. It's, this is a doctrine that has been contested and confronted since day two of the church. You can realize all throughout the scriptures, you can see it all through the early church and then throughout the history of the church from that time, the revelation of Jesus's uh, Godhood has been contested and uh, stood against uh, throughout all the ages. This is something for us to hold on to and to understand, yet holding fast to this doctrine is absolutely essential to rightly understanding, worshiping, following, and living in accordance with Jesus. So when seeking to understand this, this is like one of those mysteries of the Christian faith. I want to just say this, and I'll probably say it five times this morning. The goal is not that you ultimately comprehend this. Here's, I I, I want this to just sink in for you. The goal 
of engaging this truth is not so that you have all of it tied up in a bow and you fully comprehend it. I've been hearing really fun stories about the student ministry. Uh, This past uh, week, they walked through John chapter one, and I've been hearing these unbelievable uh, questions that they're asking in relation to this truth. Wait, wait, wait. If, if God is, if, if Jesus is God, how does he say he doesn't know things? Right? Have you ever grappled with that one? If Jesus is God, what, how, how is he God when he's a baby? Right? When he can't talk, when he can't walk. How is the creator of the world helpless and can't walk for himself? This should boggle your mind. The goal is not that you have comprehension of this. The goal is that you reverently submit to it and that you respond to it with awe-filled wonder. That's the goal. So I just want to put that in front of us. The paradoxical truth of Christ's full divinity and full humanity are given by revelation and must be received as such. This is God making himself known to us so that we might live in communion with him. So look at the word of God. So from the jump, right at the beginning, in this statement in John, John brings us face to face with this person named the word of God, right? The opening line of John's gospel introduces us to the concept of the word. In the beginning was the word. It's clear from the prologue of John's gospel, which is just the first 18 verses of the gospel, that this personified word holds a special place in relation to God, in relation to creation, in relation to redemption. So immediately out of the gate, John wants you to look at the word as a person, right? This this word of God who is a person uh, who has intention, who has faculty, right? So we're put face to face with this concept of the word. It's clear from the outline of John's gospel that this extended meditation on the word serves as necessary background, Uh, It's the essential backstory, so to speak, for rightly seeing and understanding Jesus Christ and the events that are going to be outlined in John. In verses 14 to 18, which we're going to be looking at next week, John writes and and tells us that this very word that we're going to hear this meditation about this morning, he became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived among us. This was not only God's word, but the very glory of God, the the son of God. And this word or the son is the full expression of who God is. The unseen God is made known in this person, the word, and he is Jesus of Nazareth. I just want you to hear this read this morning, and I'll try not to preach it today, and I'll wait till next week. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. So the word is not just the word of God, he's the glory of God. Catch that. He is the glory of the uncreated God. The word is God's glory. We've seen it. 
the glory like a son coming from the Father. So he's the word of God, he's the glory of God, he's the son of God, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we've all received. So he is the full storehouse of God's own being made known. We have received grace for grace. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He gives you a sign there. Hey, who I'm talking about, this word, the glory of God, the son of God, the one of the fullness, the one that's given us grace is Jesus of Nazareth. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the father's side made him known. So many interpreters, letter D, try to understand the background of John's use of the term logos here, which is the Greek word for word. There's a lot of ideas of the logos in Greek philosophy as this like reasoning principle that held a lot of things together or held the world together. Although there might be warrant in looking to this, it is more likely that John is drawing on the rich tradition of the Hebrew scriptures that provide a backdrop for, backdrop for understanding the power of God's word. So I want to just highlight a few things as we come to what is John getting at when he says the word. In the beginning was the word. I want you to see how the Old Testament views and understands God's own word, right? The scripture declares that God created all things by the power of his word. Look at Genesis 1 verse 3. God said, God spoke. Do you know how God created? God spoke and it happened. God uttered a word and it came into being. Light and it happened. And then so many times throughout Genesis 1, God said, let there be and it was. How did God create everything? He spoke His word created. We see this in Psalm 33. The psalmist writes, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all of their hosts. So we see that the word has this creative power, this power to create things from nothing. The word of the Lord is also said in the prophets, oftentimes to come to someone or it almost takes this personified role where the word of the Lord talks. It's it's boggling. I don't know if you've ever been bothered by this, but look at 1 Samuel. The Lord appeared, okay? So we get this idea, the Lord appears to Samuel again at Shiloh. Because he revealed himself. How did he reveal himself? By his word. How did God appear to Samuel? He appeared through his word. It's a mind-boggling reality to me. How do you use the faculty of sight, right? You use one concept of sensory experience, appearing, and then you fill it with a different sensory experience, vehicle, the word. How many times have you said, hey, so-and-so appeared to me by talking? Have you ever done that? We don't do that, right? So in the Old Testament, as God's revealing himself, there is 
power in his word. It's not just, uh, it's not just uh, like linguistic categories to communicate something. There's creative power in it. There's a revelatory power in it. There is appearing like power in it. And we see this again and again as the word of the Lord comes to the prophets speaking things. Look at the top of page two. So we see that the word of the Lord creates, the word of the Lord appears, and the word of the Lord works. It does things. It accomplishes things. It has power, we see, particularly in the acts of God's redemptive works, his deliverance, and in his judgment. Look at Psalm 29 here. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. Now, the psalmist starts to tell you what happens when God talks. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks cedars. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. So the psalmist has this meditation that the word of the Lord is not just communicating information. The word of the Lord has power to do things, to move things, to shake things, to alter things. We see this again in the prophet of Isaiah, verse 10 in chapter 55. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Just like that, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It will not come back to me empty. It will accomplish everything that I purpose. What accomplishes everything that God purposes? His word. God's word has power to accomplish the purposes of God. Okay, so this is the rich tradition and history that's filling John's mind as he sits down and writes the sentence in the beginning was the word, right? There's this person of the word of God who has existed with God from eternity past that has power, creative power, uh, working power. It brings forth his works and his judgments and his redemption. Okay, look at the eternal word. So this is some of the background. So what does John invite us to see or believe about the word? The opening line of John's gospel brings us face to face with three realities about Jesus's nature that must be believed upon and held together in tension. Okay, so these three realities have helped shape what I would say is like the boundaries around how the church has perceived who is Jesus as it relates to his divinity. Right? So these are, are like boundaries that you have to have in place. And these three realities have been contested and pushed on and pushed against and forgotten at different times and in different ways throughout church history. And we have to take them and receive them by faith and hold fast to them. So what are they? He gives us three statements, three boundary lines that we are to put around us. Number one. The word is eternally existent. Look at this. In the beginning was the word. 
So John begins by declaring that this word, Jesus Christ, existed in the beginning. The allusion here is clear. This is meant to take you all the way back to Genesis chapter one. The first words of the Bible, in the beginning, God. We're supposed to think about that, remember that, be drawn towards that, and John is saying, in the beginning, the word. He wants you to know that this person he is talking about existed at the the time of the beginning. At the time when God set out to create all things, he existed. This statement demonstrates for us that at the time of the beginning, the word existed. To state this illustrates what's referred to as the pre-existence of Jesus. So in other words, here's, this is a fancy way to say this. The man Jesus began to exist as a man at conception. But the word of God, the son of God, the person who is, who, who became flesh, did not begin to exist at that point. He existed before his conception. So Jesus, the the word of God, the son of God, did not begin to exist at the time of the birth of Jesus, but rather existed before he came as a man and he existed prior to creation. Okay, is your brain like exploding yet? Okay, we're not trying to get comprehension. We are trying to humbly stand in awe of the God who would do this. That's what we're trying to get to, okay? So your brain hurting is okay. That's an okay experience right now. So the first thing John puts in front of us, the word existed eternally. He existed eternally. There was never a time that ever was that he was not. That's a fancy way to say it. He is always existing, the word The second thing that John invites us to see and believe is that the word is distinct from God. Now you're going to go, wait, 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 wait. You're just telling me the whole time that the word, that that Jesus is God. We're going to get there. But John tells us that in some manner, the word is distinct from God, right? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. What's the next sentence? And the word was with God, right? So there's two persons here and the persons are with one another, right? The word is there with God at the creation, in the beginning, in this time that we're meditating on right now, this time before creation, the word was there and the word was with God. So John tells us a second statement that The word of God was in some manner distinct from God. John tells us that at the time of the beginning, in eternity past, the word existed in some manner that was uh, distinct from God the Father. This is demonstrated by the fact that the word can be with God in the beginning. Right? So you have, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The last sentence Letter D, the third statement that we have to put to keep us in these boundaries is 
the word is the same as God. So, in the beginning was the word, eternally existent. Never a time that was where the word was not. He was with God and he was God. He was himself God. The final reality that John introduces in this statement is that the word was in fact God himself. Although there's some distinction in his personhood as it relates to God the Father, we see here that the word of God is not a subservient being to God, but is himself God. So the reason I say that is all throughout the church, and especially in the early church, there have been these uh, doctrines that have been promoted, these heretical doctrines that said Jesus was like a demigod. He was the first creation of God. He was made by God before God made everything else. And what John tells us here is that is fundamentally, categorically untrue. The word was with God and the word was God. So taken together, these three statements demonstrate the, the reality of the full measure of God's, uh, uh, the deity of Jesus Christ. He exists eternally as the word who is both with God and himself was God. Okay, look at the top of page three. What I want to do now is I want to show you other places in the New Testament where the New Testament writers picture this reality to you without coming out and saying it explicitly. Because whether you're aware of it or not, and this actually makes its way into contemporary constructions of the church, there is a really popular claim in the last several hundred years of church history that the early church did not believe Jesus was God, that that was a later uh, church uh, kind of conspiracy. If, if you don't think this is popular, go read the Da Vinci Code. Actually, don't go read the Da Vinci Code. But <laughs> the wildly popular nature of the Da Vinci Code is this, that the, the later church began to add these things that were never early to Christianity. And this pervades all over the like pop culture understanding of Jesus. And so I want to show you in the scriptures where all throughout the New Testament, Jesus is understood to be God himself come to save us. And I want to show how a couple places how they do that. Uh, the Bible rarely, or the New Testament rarely, comes out and says, Jesus is God. It happens a few times. We just read one of them, but there are very few in the New Testament. So you might go, hey, maybe they have a point. John was written much later. Maybe they started to add this back in as, as they tried to develop why they were responding to him in these ways. Here's, I want to show you how the New Testament demonstrates that Jesus is God. And then we'll talk about why it matters. So it demonstrates this and it shows it to us as Jesus either doing things that God alone does 
or possessing attributes that God alone is said to possess. So let's just look at a couple of these. Letter B, Jesus' role in creation. Throughout the Old Testament, the Lord alone is said to have the power to create. No one else helped him. No one else sustained him. No one else worked with him to bring forth everything in creation. He is the unique and powerful creator of all. So according to the Old Testament, there are only two categories in all of existence. God and creation. Everything else. There are creator and created. You're, you, everything falls into one of those two categories. And the way that you know you are in the first category, the only way you can be in the first category is that you created. That's it. The one that created is the creator. Everything else is creation. That is how the understanding of the Old Testament developed, right? So there's, that's how God revealed himself. You're either the creator or you're part of the creation. And if you were creating, you are God. Does that make sense? So how do we see this? Isaiah 44, the Lord says, I'm your redeemer. I'm the Lord who made everything. I alone stretched out the heavens. I alone spread out the earth by myself. Nobody else was there with me. I did it myself. Yet, the early church understood that Jesus Christ was instrumental in the creation of all things. This is not contrary to the Old Testament understanding of creation. Rather, it demonstrates that Jesus is God, right? When the New Testament comes out and says, all things were made by him. Again, you are either creator or created. There is no other categories. Creator, created. If you're in the creator category, you are God. So this is what the New Testament says about Jesus. John goes on after these first sentences and he says, all things were made through him. He is in the creator category. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Paul says this, for by Jesus all things were created. Things in heaven, things on earth. Things that you can see, things that you can't see. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. Everything was created through him and created for him. Paul goes, Jesus in the category of creator. Hebrews, in the last days, God spoke to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. And Jesus upholds the world by the word of his power. Right now, sustaining creation by speaking. This is God, okay? This is them saying, this man is God. He is the Lord. Look at letter C. So we see this by them saying that he can create. He did create. We also see this, that Jesus has the ability to save and forgive sins. Look at number two. Jesus declared that he had the authority to forgive sins. Here's a fun thing. When Jesus, this, this awesome little um, story with the paralytic that gets lowered in through the roof, I always find it really amazing 
that this guy and his friends go to all this trouble to get him close to Jesus. Lower him through the roof. There's people everywhere. Why does Jesus look at him and go, your sins are forgiven? That's not what he's there for, right? Have you ever thought about that? This guy's going like, thanks Jesus, but can't you tell the reason I'm here? Like I'm on this mat and all my friends had to lower me in. Can't you tell the reason I'm actually here? Jesus goes, no, 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 I'm using this as a, as a test study right here, a case study. I want everybody else to know something. He goes, brother, your sins are forgiven. And all of the Pharisees rightly deduce something. They hate it, but they rightly deduce it. What do they say? Nobody can forgive sins but God. No one can do that. No one has the authority to do that. No one has the power to do that. No one except God can do that. And then Jesus goes, okay, I'm going to do something to prove to you I have that authority. Then he heals the man. Get up, walk. Jesus is telling them right there, I am God. That's the point of that story. He looks at him and he goes, I want you all to know that I have the authority that God alone has. Get up and walk. That's what he's communicating. That is Jesus is God. That's what's screaming to you in that story. Okay, letter D. Jesus receives worship, honor, and glory that is due to God alone in the New Testament. So the New Testament doesn't come out necessarily and go, Jesus is God all the time. But you do see people worshiping Jesus and he doesn't stop them. He does not tell them, no, 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 no. You got that wrong. Look at this. Throughout the Old Testament, God alone was to be worshiped. To offer worship to anything else, anyone else is blasphemy or idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me, the Lord told his people. Look at this. Jesus himself understands he's a good interpreter of the Old Testament. Jesus, when he's tempted by Satan to bow down and worship him so that he can run all the, all the kingdoms of the world, what does Jesus tell Satan? Only God should be worshiped. Only God should be worshiped. So why does Jesus let people worship him? Because he's God, right? Because he is the Lord. We see this all over the place in the gospels. They want you to know this man gets the worship that's due to God alone. Matthew chapter two, the magi come and they fall down in worship. Matthew 14, his disciples, when he's walking on the water and he gets into the boat with them, they fall down and worship him. When he's resurrected and he comes back to them and sends them out, it says they worshiped him. Jesus is given a name above every name, Philippians 2 tells us. In Revelation, Jesus is given eternal worship with God the Father. Jesus shared in the glory of God that God does not share with another. Look at Isaiah 42 here under number five. The Lord tells Isaiah, I am the Lord. I do not give my glory to another. Look at the audacity of Jesus's prayer in John 17. 
glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world was created. You know what he's saying there? The glory that God does not give to another is my glory. I am God is what he's saying. I am the uncreated God. I am fully God who shares in the glory that is due to God alone. That's mine, Jesus would say. That's how he demonstrates that to you. I'll let you look at the Lord and ruler on your own. All right, let's go to page five. Why does this matter? Roman numeral six. You can read the historic confession on your own as well. Why does this matter? I, I want us to grapple with the reality that this is not just an obscure or difficult theological doctrine. This is essential for us to receive this truth by faith as we seek to follow Jesus, live our lives in accordance with his designs and his commands. This doctrine isn't just like a head in the clouds uh, thing that has no effect on our life as followers of Jesus. It is profoundly important for us, profoundly important for us as we follow him. Let me give you several reasons. Number one, to believe this truth is to believe God as he has revealed himself. Okay, so this is why I did what I did last week in the sermon on the scripture and the need for revelation, right? The scripture reveals the words of God, right? So we made the deduction last week. So to disbelieve or disobey any word of the scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. This is what the word of God reveals to be true about Jesus, Right? So for its own sake there, it is worthy of our acceptance and belief because God has revealed himself this way. Why is it worth believing? Because this is what God says about himself. That alone, we should stop and have like a worship service for that alone. But there's many more reasons. Number two, as God, Jesus is worthy of worship. Said differently, if Jesus is not God, we should not worship him. Have you thought about that? If Jesus is not God and we worship him, we are practicing idolatry, blasphemy. God alone is worthy of worship. And Jesus has revealed that he is God Almighty. So because of that, he is worthy of our worship. To offer worship to anyone other than the true creator is blasphemy and idolatry. However, if Jesus is God, if he is this, then he is worthy of our worship. If, if, if he is God, he's worthy of responding to this revelation with humble submission and reverent awe. He's worthy of all of our lives, all of our affections, all of our thoughts, all of our strength. Closely related to this. Number three, as God, Jesus demands our submission and obedience. So closely tied to the issue of worship 
is the issue of submission and obedience. The doctrine of Jesus' divinity brings us face to face with the primary reason why we must submit our lives to him and follow him. So many pictures today seek to garner our sympathies toward Jesus uh, by first demonstrating that he is worth our, our obedience because of what he has done or what he has taught. And we ultimately can't separate them, but I do want to press something in upon us. The primary reason that you should follow Jesus is not because of what he has done for you. It is because of who he is. He is God. And as the creator, as the Lord, as the sovereign over everything, that alone is worth all of our submission to him, all of our obedience to him, all of our reverence to him. We should respond to him because he is God. Now, this will bring us to how in the world can I submit to him? How can I follow him? How can I do this? The only way to do this is through the way that he has shown and the way that he has made. And we'll get to that in a second. But if he is the creator of all the earth and the Lord of all the earth, then our lives must be oriented around him and submitted to him. So there's, there's these kind of sentimental portraits of Jesus or like, man, he's a really good example. He's a really good teacher. You should follow his ways because he'll make uh, our lives a little better or we'll be a kinder, more loving person in the world. The reason you should submit your life to Jesus is because he's the Lord. He's the Lord. He, cre- he was there at creation. He created all things. He's in charge. He gets to define what life is about and what is good and right and lasting and true and beautiful. He gets to decide that. Our submission to that hinges wholly on the fact that he's God. That is primary. So he demands our submission and obedience as God. Next, as God, Jesus reveals the Father. One of the most necessary implications of Jesus' full divinity is that he is the full expression, the self-expression and revelation of God. God revealed aspects of his character, nature, purposes, and will throughout all of the history of redemption. However, these realities were fulfilled and brought to their fullness in Christ. This means that Jesus is the full revelation of God in a form that we can understand, that we can sense, that we can experience, that we can listen to his words and see what he's done. It's like a language that we can understand. He comes and he demonstrates and shows us what God is like. He takes from the storehouses and the treasure houses of his character and nature and glory and he puts it on display and says, this is what I'm like. Come and see, come and believe, hear my words, know my heart. This is who I am. Do you want to know God? He has declared himself. 
He has made himself known. The only God who dwells in the bosom of the Father came and took on a frame like you have so that you can know just what he's like. This is the treasure in the field that we should sell everything in our lives to lay hold of. This is a storehouse for you to get lost in for all of eternity. You will never, ever, 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 ever stop meditating on the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Ever. You won't run out. You won't run dry. It will be your occupation, your vocation, your delight, your joy. Billions and billions and billions and billions of years from now. This is what you're made for. And he came and showed you. He said, you want to know what God is like? Come and see. Come and see. The man Jesus Christ, fully God, fullness of God dwelling in him, Paul says. In him are the treasures, the riches, the unending splendor of God made known in the face of Jesus Christ. And lastly, the reason this matters for us, letter G, is as God Jesus can save. Or said inversely, if Jesus is not God, he ultimately cannot save. The scripture is abundantly clear that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation comes through the Lord alone. Only God can save you from your sins. The only one who can save you from the debt that you incurred against the holy, uncreated God is God himself. And he did it. He did it by taking on humanity, living the life you could not live, dying the death you deserved, raising to new life and, and, and as such was declared to be what he always was, the son of God in power. Paul says in Romans chapter one, in him is salvation. Look at the last part here. The prophet Joel demonstrated that it would only come by calling on the name of the Lord or Yahweh that people would be saved. The New Testament writers understood that in Jesus, this scripture was fulfilled and call to call upon Jesus's name for salvation is to call upon the name of the Lord. Why? Because he is the Lord. Look at these verses, Joel 2, 32, and it will come to pass that anyone, everyone, anyone that will humble themselves and call upon Yahweh's name, they will be saved. Paul comes along and he says, guess what? Yahweh saved us in Jesus. If you confess with your mouth, look at this here, that Jesus is what? Lord. That's not just saying he's the master. That's saying Jesus is God. Okay? I don't have time to prove it this morning. He's saying you confess that Jesus is the eternal Lord, one with the Lord. 
If you confess that with your mouth and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why? Because God always promised anyone that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And now, what's the name of the Lord? Jesus Christ. His life, death, resurrection. If you call on his name, you will be saved. Why? Because he's the Lord. He is the Lord, worthy of our worship, worthy of our submission, worthy of our adoration, worthy of our meditation. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's respond. This morning we'll respond through song. We'll respond by coming to the table where we remember the reality of calling upon the name of the Lord. The way that he provided salvation in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it. Call upon my name and you will be saved. And in the same manner, he took a cup of wine and he, he passed it around and he said, take this and drink this. This is the blood of the new covenant. My blood spilled out for the salvation of your soul, for the forgiveness of your sins. Call upon my name and you will be saved. We're gonna respond in worship and adoration of him this morning by coming and receiving that. If you call upon his name, if you look to him and him alone for your salvation, you're a Christian, we wanna invite you to come and take this with us. The way we do it at Redeemer is you tear a piece of the bread off, dip it in the cup. We have wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. We'll have servers up front in the middle, both sides of the balcony and uh, gluten-free to my right to your left. Yes, servers, you're welcome to come on forward now. If you're in the room this morning and you do not put your faith in Jesus, if you have not yet called upon the name of the Lord, we want to invite you this morning, call upon his name. Look to him and to him alone. But if you uh, do not put your faith in him, if you don't look to him, don't come and take this meal with us. Don't feel obligated to come do some kind of uh, religious ritual or something so, so that you can uh, be, be a part of it. This meal does not save you. God saves. And our faith in the one who has come to provide salvation is the way that we're saved. This meal just gives a pointer to it. It gives a picture to it. So if you're here and you don't believe in Jesus, we want to invite you to stay in your seat. Uh, don't feel the pressure to come and, and do this. We're really glad you're here this morning and would plead with you to look to Jesus to be saved. He is worthy of your whole life. He's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your submission and your adoration because he is the Lord. But if you don't believe in that, don't, don't come and receive. But for those of you who are, come with joy, come with gladness as we uh, turn our hearts to him in worship. Uh, and, and as we do every week, we've got ministers all throughout the sanctuary who would love to pray with you, 
love to pray for a spirit of revelation to rest upon you, to to be fascinated with the, the truth of Jesus, to know him more. If there's places of repentance or restoration you need uh, to respond to the Lord this morning, we would love to pray with you there as well. So we're going to respond in those ways. You can come forward when you're ready.